Good morning. How we doing? How's your summer going? All right? Welcome, kiddos. Y'all are in service for the month of July. We're happy to have you, parents. If that means frequent trips to the back, that is okay by us. I hope you know that by now, but if you are new, then no worries. Your kids can go back and forth. That is definitely the vibe here, especially this summer. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to be continuing to preach in this sermon series that we're in called Roots. This whole summer, we've been kind of exploring our Methodist roots. We are a United Methodist church. Stephen and I are United Methodist pastors. And we thought every once in a while, it's good to just touch base and remind ourselves what it means to be Methodist. Because far too long, including my entire childhood, I was technically Methodist. And if someone asked me what that meant, I'd say, we sing hymns more than other people. We're kind of in the middle. We're kind of nice. That's what I would have said because I don't know that I knew what it meant to be Methodist. And so it has been a journey over these last few years to really discover and think about what are the distinctions or distinctives of Wesleyanism or Methodism. Those words can be used interchangeably. Because we started as a renewal movement in the Anglican church in the 1700s. And over time, that has changed. But there have been things from that history that are worth holding on to. And so during this sermon series, we've been exploring, in the first half, we explored what makes Methodism unique in terms of beliefs or theology, which is just a fancy word for beliefs about God. And we talked about, for three weeks, four weeks, we talked about what those beliefs were. And now we're going to kind of transition to something different. Because here's the thing. All Christians believe in a set of certain beliefs, those defined by the Apostles' Creed. Those are kind of the breakdown of what all Christians believe. But then, if you notice and say the Apostles' Creed, you'll notice that there are some phrases that don't define much. So we say, we believe that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. Nowhere in that creed does it define what that means. And so you got all these different groups of people who were defining that differently. And overall, those don't make huge impacts except when it comes to how those people do churches and do practices in the church. You see, our beliefs start to affect our practices, just like how we act. What we believe affects how we act. Same thing in churches. So what we believe starts to change what we do, what words we say, how we teach, what we say in worship, who we allow to teach, All those things, how we organize our churches, that all comes from what we believe. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks, we're going to pick three practices, three things that Methodists do a little bit differently than others, and we're going to talk about why. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to start by the belief that defines that practice. Does that make sense? Okay, so this sermon is going to feel a lot more teachy than usually... I do, okay? So just bear with me. If you feel like this is a lecture, it's going to kind of feel like one, and that's okay, all right? But I think it's important because we don't get the opportunity to really understand what we're doing here very much. So we're going to take the opportunity over these next three weeks, okay? So first, let's start with the belief. The belief that we're talking about today is the belief that Stephen first preached on when he started this series. So to back up, 
all Christians, every Christian believes in salvation, in something called salvation. Generally, what that means is that we believe that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, forgave our sins, and because of that, we are enabled to have eternal life. There's a lot of debate about what eternal life means, tons of debate about how that happened, but generally, we believe in something called salvation. Some Christians tend to focus on the first half of salvation. You might hear this in your world, I know you hear this in the world because it's more common here in Dallas than in other places, as a decision made. They talk about it as the language of being saved. In other words, God works in your life, you make a decision, and then you become saved. Something in you moves to move for repentance from God, and we call that justification. So basically, you're saved, and then you move on and become a Christian, and that's how you live your life. That's one half. Other Christians, including Methodists, tend to emphasize the second half of salvation. This is the piece where, yes, you've been saved, but then you keep getting saved by becoming more like Jesus. We call this second half sanctification. These are big words, y'all, and I wish I had different ones, but that's all I got. All right? Sanctification. Here's the difference. Basically, some people believe that salvation is a decision. Some people believe it's a process. Yeah? Methodists are in the process camp. We believe that it's a lifelong journey that makes you more like Jesus. And you do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. That belief made Wesleyans start to think about, well, how do we talk about this? How do we make sense of this? How do we describe this whole thing called salvation? And the way that Methodists start to talk about it is through this word called grace. And if there's one word that defines Methodism, it is this word called grace. And if you grew up in a Methodist tradition, you have overheard this word repeated over and over again. It's not a unique word. Other traditions use it. But Methodism plants their flag in it. Because what we see is that grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. It is basically how God chooses to act in our lives to move us on this process of salvation. And generally, we think about grace moving in three distinct ways. And this is what Stephen talked about a few weeks ago. Generally, although it's not linear, we think about grace in three ways. Preventing grace, sometimes called prevenient grace, this is the grace, the unmerited favor, the love of God that existed before you were even born. It's why we baptize babies. Because we believe that God is already wanting them to join this path of salvation before they were even born. That God has moved in their lives already. We think that God makes it possible for us to turn towards him before he even, we're even on this earth, before other people know us. And we call that preventing, because it's protective, right, grace, or prevenient grace. And then some point in your life, you move on and you start to realize your need for God. You start to realize that, oh God, I actually don't have this all together. And sometimes that's one moment. Sometimes that's a series of moments. Sometimes we go all the way up to sanctifying and slide back down and have to restart the process. Yeah? So in that moment of justifying grace, that's when you start to realize you need God. 
and you start to turn back. That might be a decision. That might be a series of decisions. It can look way different in your 20s than it does in your 60s. But that's what we believe happens. And at, the, at that point, you start to live into the Holy Spirit that is in you. And when you do, the Holy Spirit empowers you to become more holy. And that is what sanctifying grace is. If you are a believer, if you believe in Jesus, you are somewhere along that sanctifying spectrum. And it takes a whole lifetime of living into that to really feel the Spirit moving you. So this is how we think about salvation. This is how we think about what it means to be a believer. Now here's the problem with that though. You can look at that like Wesley did and said, well, we believe that God is the one who makes the first move, that God's the one who gives us grace. We don't make the decision to follow him. He's already in our lives. So what are we supposed to do? Just like sit back and wait for God to save us? Is that the solution? That we just wait for these things to happen to us and then we'll be fine? And Wesley said, man, there must be a more methodical way of us receiving grace. And so he defined these things as means of grace. Y'all with me? You tracking? Okay, I know this is a lot, y'all. Means of grace. Here's what means of grace are. Means of grace are concrete, like physical, spiritual disciplines set apart by God as the most reliable way to receive preventing, justifying, and sanctifying grace. They are the most reliable way, historically and otherwise, most of them are based in scripture, to receive grace. In other words, you, God can do anything. God can save you from a mud pit. God can do whatever he needs to do. But if you want to have some proactiveness in this journey, then there is a list of things that you can do that we reliably believe you can receive and encounter God in. And they are real and they exist and there is a list. And so when Wesley was thinking about what are these means of grace, how, what are the ones that we can count on, this is what he said. The chief of these means are prayer, whether in secret or with a great congregation. Searching the scriptures, which implies reading, hearing, and meditating thereon. And receiving the Lord's Supper, eating bread and drinking wine in remembrance of him. And these we believe to be ordained of God as the ordinary channels of conveying his grace to the souls of men. Prayer, searching the scriptures, and the Lord's Supper. There's actually more. He wrote more, and there's a, like a longer list. But these are the main three. Prayer, scripture, and the Lord's Supper. Now, prayer and scripture... Methodists don't vary that much from other Christians. We believe that prayer is directed attention towards God. It's the intentional time that you take to be in communion with God. Almost all Christians believe that that is a means of grace in which you can connect with God. 
searching the scriptures. We've, there are different groups of folks who believe in, about looking at the scriptures in a different way than us. But by and large, most Christians believe that scripture is meant for you to be spiritually transformed. That is the role of scripture in your life. It is not to answer all your questions. It is not to give you a how-to book. It is to go in and find God in that book. It is to know God and by knowing God, be transformed by him. We don't differ that much from other Christians. But the last one, Lord's Supper. That's where the how of how we do it is actually a little bit different than other folks and other Christians. And so that's what we're going to spend our time talking about today. Okay? So the Lord's Supper for us is a sacrament. A sacrament. I feel like I'm giving y'all like a quiz. I needed a quiz after this. All these definitions, but they're important. Okay, a sacrament is a material sign or action that God has chosen as a special way to give grace. How many sacraments do we have in, this, in most Protestant churches? Trick question. Two. What are they? Baptism. Praise the Lord. Baptism and communion. Baptism and communion are the two. Most Protestant churches have those two. If you're a raised Catholic, you know that they have a lot more, yeah? But Protestant churches, by and large, have two. Not all Protestant churches believe they are sacraments. What it means to believe something is a sacrament is to believe that God actually does something through the act. In other words, we believe that God is not only present, but does something supernatural in the communion and in the baptism. And that trips people out a lot, but that's actually what we believe. We believe that these signs are not just signs. They're not just a symbolic gesture, that they actually do something. So in baptism, when we take that water, we believe that you are then initiated into God's family, that you are now part of God's family. And with communion, we believe that when you take that bread, something is open, you should be open to something happening in you to knit you back together to God's family, to knit you back together with God. It ties us all together in communion. Now, what's really interesting is the combination of baptism and communion. They're very closely related, although you might not notice it right away, but hopefully you will today. Because Y'all might not know this. How do we start communion here? Does anyone remember how we start it? Probably not. We start it with confession. What is the first question of baptism? Do you renounce the forces of spiritual uh, wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? That's how we start baptism. That's also how we start communion. Then we go through these next three questions in baptism. Do you accept the freedom do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior? Will you remain faithful members and Christ representatives in the world? All three of those questions are answered in the communion liturgy. It's almost like baptism is the start, and then this is the weekly sustenance, or the monthly sustenance in our point, on your spiritual journey. They're woven together as a way that God's grace is made real. There's a big question rightfully so, in terms of like, great, but like what happens 
in communion? Like, how does that work? Sure, we can believe something supernatural happens, but like, what actually happens? And lots of people have spilt a lot of ink over this question over the centuries. Yeah, it's like this Jesus' like physical body, is it not? What do we believe? And by and large, honestly, Methodists kind of cop out on this one and say, well, it's just a mystery. And I think actually that might be okay. It might be okay to say, look, we believe enough in the power of the sacrament and the sign that Jesus gave us and this ability to be here and present and to give us physical things, thank God, so that we can believe that we don't need to know exactly how this works. But one of my favorite writers kind of takes a stab at it to try to explain why communion, why bread, why wine, why like this. Henry Nouwen is a Catholic spiritual writer, actually, but he talks about communion as this metaphor of the bread. And he says, just like in communion, the bread is taken and then we break it. We bless it first and then we break it and then we give it taken, blessed, broken, and given, that is exactly what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Taken, blessed, broken, and then given for the service of others. That maybe this meal, this bread, is a reminder of what the Christian life is supposed to be like of what our lives are supposed to be like, of how we're supposed to live differently, of how we see broken things and actually know that it can be an act of service and not just something that is flawed. This act of taken and blessed and broken and given is kind of like an embodied prayer that we say together every month as a reminder of who we are. And that's why we do it together. Because whether we like it or not, Christianity, it's a group project. It is not individually based. Yes, your own spiritual journey matters. But there will be times, and they happen a lot, where you will not feel like you want to play. And that's when you can look around and remind yourself that there are other people who are willing to play alongside you, even when you can't believe. And maybe that's what communion does. It reminds us that we are the body of Christ, not individually, but collectively. And that's why taking this at home doesn't feel the same as taking it here. Yeah? What I just described, though, is a view of the sacraments that not all, but a decent amount of people hold. Anglicans, Episcopalians, Catholics, a similar, similar view. So it's not that that's quite different about the Methodist. It's actually how and who we invite to our table. Methodists have a practice, and we have from the beginning, called open table or open communion. What that means is that you do not have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a member of any church. You don't even have to be baptized. It doesn't matter your age. 
It does, that's why we have kids in here on Sundays, because we believe that it doesn't matter what your age is, that we don't care about your worthiness. You don't need to recite a creed. There's no intellectual assent. Check box, I got it. You don't need to have it figured out. It does not matter. This table is not ours. It is God's. And that belief is actually quite different than other groups of Christians. The belief that anyone, anyone can come to our table is what sets us apart. And there are a few reasons that we believe that in the first place. And the first is that Jesus modeled the open table for us. We see so many instances of Jesus eating meals with people in the Gospels. So, so many. And it's a good reminder that this meal wasn't served like this for the first few centuries. It was a literal dinner. A dinner together with people. It was a meal. And in that meal that Jesus had on his way to Emmaus, when he was with the tax collectors in Samaria, did he ever stop and ask, hey, are you a member? Have you fixed everything in your life? Do you believe, actually, that I am the Son of God? Not once do we have evidence of Jesus blocking the meal from other people. We take that very seriously as evidence of what we should be doing with this meal. The second reason is we don't own God's grace. We, the church, like this, we don't own God's grace. We are not the people who step in front of it and block people. Here's the reason. We call this the Lord's Supper because who is the host of this table? Not me. It is Jesus. Jesus invites you, not me. So I do not get to say who gets to come forward. You do not get to say who gets to come forward. The only requirement is that you are open and willing to take what Jesus is going to give you. That you are open and willing to take what Jesus wants to share with you. That is what I say at the beginning. I say, Christ invites all to this table who repent of their sin and want to be more like him. If those two requirements fit you, then you are welcome at this table. Because this is a gift to us. And this is also why you'll notice, and I'm guilty of this, but we, we don't say take communion. Sometimes I do, and I need to stop that. It's actually receive communion. Yeah? Because this is a gift that is being given to you. So that's the second reason. And the third is not so much a reason, but just kind of a warning. This table is open to everyone. Everyone can come to this table. But the grace that we receive is not cheap. And this is a phrase that was started by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II. What he meant is that you can receive God's gift, but it comes with responsibility. So if you are not ready for your life to be transformed as you know it, then you should be cautious about taking that gift. The Christian life is not an easy life. It is hard. You will have to say no to things you don't want to say no to, and you will have to say yes to things you don't want to say yes to. The table is open 
but the cost is great. And to take from this table means that you are willing to start that journey, to continue that journey, to be open to that journey wherever you are, and to walk that road, whatever it might look like. The thing that I believe most about this table is that what we do becomes who we are. It is not just a little, like, asterisk that we allow anyone at our table. Because what it tells us and what it tells other people is that in this church, you will be accepted no matter what. You will be accepted when the world rejects you. We will take in anyone who needs us. And that is how we become the church that we are meant to become. Not as arbiters of God's grace, but as people who are willing to facilitate it for other people. No matter what they look like, no matter where they came from, honestly, no matter where they are in their beliefs, we get to be that church by practicing communion the way we do. So today, we get a chance to experience that. And I want to remind you, in case, in case you need reminding, we believe that something happens here that does not mean that it feels all joyous and fuzzy and all the time great. That's, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that sometimes something happens here that you can't perceive right away. That does not mean that something is not happening. So when you take it today, let it be more than a sign. Let it be a real gift of God working in you. I don't know where you are in your journey today. I don't know what your week's been like. I don't know what your summer's been like. But let it be not just a reminder, but an actual presence of God in you at the table today. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our bodies, prepare our souls to receive the goodness that you offer us today. Let us see your supper in a new way. Let us feel that your supper in a new way, to know that you are with us here in our midst and to be comforted and encouraged and challenged and convicted by that. Work in us as you will. It is only in your name that we pray. Amen.